Welcome back to Bubble Pop, where we pop the Canberra bubble for you and explain exactly what's inside. I'm Amanda Kopp, political reporter with the Community Radio Network. And I'm Sarah Ison, a federal correspondent with the West Australian newspaper. We both work in the Federal Press Gallery and have created this show for you to break down what's actually going on inside this place and go over the basics of politics. So let's jump in. Welcome back, everyone. It's so good to have you back with us. Now, Parliament wasn't sitting this week, but we still have so much to get through. It's been a really, really exciting, I would say, five days, but I feel like most of the stuff happened before Wednesday. It was pretty insane. Yeah, that's right. So even just on Monday, it was the cabinet reshuffle, which was pretty major news. A whole bunch of ministers moving around and doing different things. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about that, but we're also going to talk about this huge wage subsidy scheme, JobKeeper coming to an end, JobSeeker, which is a welfare payment, also came to an end. And of course, more scandals. I think this is the 999th scandal of this year, right? (laughs) The Liberals just can't seem to get a break on this front. We'll be talking about the person involved this time. His name's Andrew Lamming and explaining why Scott Morrison just really, really doesn't want to fire him. And to top it all off, there was the Federal Labor Conference. Now, what is that? Why does it matter? We're going to explain. That's right. So let's jump in. Amanda, the cabinet reshuffle, what is it? All right. So cabinet is basically the name for the politicians at the top of the government who hold the most important roles. People like the Minister for Finance, Education, Health, Defence and the Treasurer. For example, the prime minister gets to decide who is in his cabinet, and they're the people who make most of the decisions in government about policies and what things should be changed around the country. A reshuffle is where people change positions. So they might have been the attorney general, for example, and instead become the minister for industry, science and technology, which is actually what happened this week. It's basically where ministers are moved or dropped from various portfolios. Yeah, it's like promotions and demotions on steroids. It's like the stakes are so high. When it comes to this. And super public as well. Yeah, it's kind of like, you've been demoted. The world will know. We were expecting just two ministers to be shifted. We definitely knew that was going to happen. And those two were Linda Reynolds and Christian Porter. They'd both been embroiled in, you guessed it, scandal. But Scott Morrison had something else in mind. He rejigged almost the entire cabinet to give this whole fresh look to his government and show that he was listening and wanted to do better when it came to the treatment of women. These changes will shake up what needs to be shaken up while maintaining the momentum and the continuity and the stability that Australia needs. The changes I'm announcing today will once again provide the strongest ever female representation in an Australian government cabinet. But there's already been a lot of criticism about some of the moves in that reshuffle. First among them is the Minister for Women, Maurice Payne. You might have heard about her on Twitter. Uh, If any of you are on Twitter, there was a hashtag going around, where is Maurice Payne? Basically criticising that when that women's march happened a couple of weeks ago, protesting the treatment of women, she didn't show up even though it was a massive event for the women of Australia. And I don't think she's even had one press conference, really, in the six or seven weeks when women's issues have been so central. Except for that one time that she literally got chased through Parliament House by a bunch of reporters. That's right, and finished the doorstop by getting into a lift. (laughs) So to make 
women more of a focus. Rather than dropping her from that particular portfolio, the Prime Minister has added a whole lot of other women to various roles. It's kind of like he's split up the women's portfolio. So now we've got an Assistant Minister for Women, Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker, a Minister for Women's Economic Security, that's Victorian Senator Jane Hume, and a Minister for Women's Safety, that's South Australian Senator Anne Rustin, who's also going to stay on as Social Services Minister. That's right. And then Maurice Payne and Scott Morrison will co-chair this new Cabinet Task Force for Women. To drive my government's agenda in response to these key issues involving women's equality, women's safety, women's economic security, women's health and well-being. Another big change is that Christian Porter stepped down as Attorney General. Now, we've been expecting something like this to happen for weeks. It follows rape allegations from the 1980s that have been levelled against him. Now, he's always denied those allegations, but he's gone ahead and sued the ABC for defamation for reporting on that alleged incident. But this brought up a whole lot of problems if he was going to stay on as AG. And that's because the Attorney General oversees the federal court and defamation laws and you can't go ahead and sue someone for defamation while being involved in reforms for defamation. It's just too big a conflict of interest. Now, he's been moved on to Industry, Science and Technology Minister, which a lot of people see as a demotion from the chief lawmaker of Australia. Now, that portfolio was held by Queensland MP Karen Andrews. Andrews was already a very senior woman in the party, but she's now been given an even bigger job. That's Minister for Home Affairs. It's a really powerful department which looks over things like terrorism, drug trafficking and immigration, as well as overseeing the police force and border force. So there's a lot of kind of pseudo-defence kind of things in there and a lot of men in that portfolio. Now, she was the second woman to graduate from the University of Queensland with an engineering degree. So she's pretty used to operating in a man's world. Yeah, very impressive lady altogether. Now, along with Christian Porter, we saw another demotion, and that was Linda Reynolds. Now, she was the defence minister, and she faced all this pressure for her handling of the Brittany Higgins rape allegation, which has really made world news. Brittany Higgins alleged she was raped by a former Liberal colleague in Linda Reynolds' office in 2019. Now, Brittany told Reynolds about this, but Reynolds never brought it to the Prime Minister. And in the fallout of all the scandal surrounding it, it actually came out that Reynolds called Brittany a lying cow in an open plan office around all these other staff. Under all that pressure, Linda Reynolds took a bunch of leave for cardiac issues. She even missed this really big address she was meant to give. The Prime Minister has now given her a domestic portfolio, and that's government services, and that covers the National Disability Insurance Scheme, Centrelink, all these kinds of services the government offers to people in Australia. Scott Morrison gave the defence portfolio to Peter Dutton. Both Porter and Reynolds are West Australians, so seeing them taken off those big portfolios was a pretty massive concern for a lot of people out West. That's right. Yeah, we were pretty concerned. But we did have a big win, which was WA Senator Michaelia Cash becoming the country's new Attorney General, and she's the first Conservative female AG. Now, all of this meant Morrison's cabinet went from six to seven women, and the PM declared it gave his government a fresh lens. But there was a really big elephant in the room... And that elephant's name was Andrew Lamming. Now, you probably hadn't heard about a guy called Andrew Lamming before this week. He's a Queensland MP who's been in Parliament for around 17 years, so a pretty long time. 
But most of that time he's been on the back bench, which means that he hasn't held a lot of ministerial positions. Now, he's come into the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. Two women in his electorate came forward publicly, saying he had trolled them online. One of them even said that she was considering suicide because of what he'd said to her on Facebook. Her name is Alex Russo. She spoke to Channel 9 about how Lamming publicly abused her on Facebook and accused her of mismanaging funds of a charity she was part of. Because I want to be alive and I don't want to be attacked anymore. That was a really intense interview and it made Lamming look pretty bad. Now he apologised but soon after he sent a message on Facebook that said he didn't even know what he was saying sorry for. There was also a bunch of emojis of like laughing faces and heart faces. The heart love heart eyes. It was a really strange uh, message. That was, I think, to one of his constituents that a reporter got hold of. And it just showed that I don't think he was being sincere. After that incident, Scott Morrison condemned his behaviour. I found them disgraceful and I called him into my office yesterday and told him to apologise and deal with it. But the scandals weren't done yet. In the following days, another Queensland woman came forward and alleged Lamming had taken a photo of her in a Brisbane store, bent over a fridge with her underwear showing. Now, interestingly, this is actually called upskirting, which in Queensland is a criminal offence. So the state police have confirmed they're looking into it. uh, But there's not been an official complaint made yet. The woman's name is Crystal White. Here's her talking about the incident. The photo was really inappropriate, especially um, when I was bent over. Now, Lamming said he won't contest the next election and he's likely to leave next year. But women in his own party are saying they're uncomfortable with him being there now. Andrew Lamming is currently on leave and will return to Parliament in May. So this was the elephant in the room at the PM's press conference where he announced that reshuffle, where he said he was listening to women. But here we have him not even listening to the people in his own party and telling Lamming to go. I reckon Mark Riley from Channel 7 put it to him best. Why shouldn't people just see this as a cynical move on your part? Because if you stand up today, use that podium, that microphone and say, as Prime Minister, I don't want this bloke in the Liberal Party. I don't want him in the Parliament. He'd be gone. But he's not going to be. In any other workplace in Australia, he would be. So isn't the reality that you can't afford to lose Andrew Lamming because he's a number, and if you lose his number, you lose control of the House of Reps? He's not running in Mark, he's not putting... Yeah, that was the last question, and then the PM walked out pretty hurriedly. Yeah, the PM said the fact that Lamming would stand down after the next election was enough of a consequence. So as Mark Riley said, Lamming is a number. He's the number that gives the coalition a majority in the House of Representatives. Right now, they have 76 of the 151 seats in the House of Reps, while Labor has 68. There's also four independents and three seats belonging to minor parties like the Greens. Even if everyone in those parties votes against the government on something, the government still has a majority. But that would change if it lost a seat and make it a minority government, which is where it doesn't have the most overall seats and has to make deals with the crossbench to pass legislation. So you can see why Morrison would be pretty hesitant to tell Lamming to go. Now, while Lamming is on leave, he's undergoing counselling and something called empathy training. But What is that? (laughs) To find out, I spoke to Leanne Butterworth, the founder of an empathy training business, Lose Your Mind, to find out what this training actually means. Can you tell me a bit about what you do? I've seen that you're an empathy trainer or offer empathy training. 
What is it that you do and how did you get yes. into this? Yes, we offer really memorable, innovative empathy training and that's born out of an advanced program that I created that uses virtual reality for um, psychologists to learn more about the in-depth experience of mental illness. But what I was finding was there's a huge misunderstanding around empathy. Can people actually be trained into being more empathetic? Absolutely. So there's two parts of that. The first one is learning about feelings, learning about experiences, learning to understand what someone's going through. That's the first part. The second part is learning to respond appropriately. Okay, so why do people take empathy training? Ultimately, people want to learn how to strengthen their relationships. They want to learn how to communicate better. They've identified that they maybe are misunderstood, that they want to connect with other people, but their their intentions aren't enough and they feel like they're creating disconnection. Andrew Lamming is getting it because he's sort of done something wrong, so to speak. Do you have people coming to you who have are being um, told to do it or it's some kind of mandated thing or is no. that – no, people, you don't provide that? Empathy training is not a punitive exercise. Empathy training is not a band-aid exercise. Empathy training is not, not – it's not the naughty corner. It's something that people come to of their own volition because they really want to strengthen their relationships. So if it was you, if you got the call, hey, we're, we want Andrew Lanning to be given this training, can you do it? Would you have said no? I would have asked if it had some consequences and a ton of therapy first because that's where true self-reflection happens. But once he's had a really good introspective growth experience, then we can look at talking about other people. So it sounds like empathy training can be pretty helpful, but Leanne didn't really seem convinced that it would actually help Lamming. Yeah, she said they're like not without counselling first and it can't be punitive. It can't be a punishment for someone, which in a lot of ways from the reporting, it seems like it really is. Now, while the government was handling its own seemingly never-ending sexual harassment scandals, over a million Australians have come off a government wage subsidy program called JobKeeper. That's right. Now, a wage subsidy is where the government pays some of the workers' wages. COVID-19 saw these huge lines of people lining up for welfare payments. We were facing a recession, an intense economic downfall. But to keep people employed, the government announced JobKeeper early last year. So basically, employers could apply for that and it would give them $1,500 per employee per fortnight to keep all their workers on. As the economy recovered, JobKeeper reduced to $1,200 and then $1,000 for full-time employees only. But that payment ended on Monday. The other major government policy during COVID-19 was something called JobSeeker. Now, that was around before the pandemic happened, but they basically increased the amount of money that they were giving to people on JobSeeker. JobSeeker is what previously was called New Start. It's what people are paid by the government while they're unemployed. The government announced a COVID-19 supplement payment to go on top of the unemployment payment. Before this supplement, JobSeeker was only $40 a day, and there were lots of people that said that's really not enough to live on. Well, when the supplement began, it essentially doubled that welfare payment. But that officially ended on Wednesday. The government did lift the base rate of JobSeeker by $50 a fortnight, but that translates to around $3.50 a day. 
To talk about the effect of these two programs coming to an end, I spoke to Sydney Morning Herald senior economics correspondent Shane Wright. Shane, welcome to the show. Lovely to be here, Amanda. So we are looking at the moment JobKeeper ended on Sunday. Was that the right time for the government to end it? I think so, because it is such a costly program and in this space you want to try and find out just how strong the economy is. But the issue is there are still some industries that are really struggling. Um, So trying to target something in terms of more support at them is actually now an imperative. So ultimately, you did have to end it. It's too expensive at $90 billion. There are too many businesses now starting to exploit the system um, because they're being given free money by the government. So you actually need to weed them off as well. What does this actually mean for Australia? Will people lose their jobs? Are we going to be seeing the unemployment rate rise? That's the expectation. So there's anywhere between 100 and 250,000 people, these are estimates by both the federal treasury and private sector economists, uh, who that's the number of people that is expected to end up in unemployment. Um, these are people who've just been kept afloat. Their business, the businesses that they work for just aren't going to reopen. Right. So, I mean, at the moment we have seen the unemployment rate actually go down probably faster than the government had originally anticipated. With JobKeeper ending, are we expecting to see that reverse? Probably punch up a little bit. um, And then through the rest of the year, we'll actually get a better idea of where the economy is travelling. And this comes to a point that I try to keep making, particularly to members of the government who talk about how great things are going. All this is predicated on the largest amount of government support for the economy since World War II. It's predicated on the Reserve Bank taking official interest rates to the lowest level on record. So there's this huge amount of stimulus that's keeping the economy afloat. Trying to unwind it and then sees and then see what happens is like it, it is a three or four hundred billion dollar question that no one really has the answer to at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that's the the line that the government is kind of trotting out, is saying that, look, you know, JobKeeper is ending. However, there are other supports that are still in the economy as well. Are there other supports in the economy that are still going? Well, this week, for instance, the Home Builder Program uh, came to an end. And this uh, and sorry, what is, just to, for our listeners, what is the no, Home Builder Program? Just to explain, yeah, Home Builder was a, a grant to uh, people looking to build or um, renovate. It was worth $15,000 as a straight grant to people. Now, under the program, even though it finished this week, um, all you had to do was actually sign a contract. So, and if you know anything about building, it can take you six, 12 months before construction actually starts. So that, for instance, that scheme will continue to support household construction well into, well, probably well into next year. JobKeeper and JobSeeker, two different things, uh, they are hard cutoffs. So that's why we're looking to see, that we'll probably see the JobKeeper and really have some sort of impact on the jobs market. And JobSeeker, when, as people drop down to a lower payment, 
there'll be less money going around in the economy. So you may actually see that turn up in other parts of the economy, particularly retail uh, for goods and services. And you mentioned before that there are going to be some industries that are really going to struggle when JobKeeper does come off. Which industries are those and why are they going to struggle so much? The government has talked largely at the last few weeks about how our job numbers are back to where they were pre-COVID. Now, that is true in aggregate, but not by industry. So this tells you what's going on. So say in the hospitality, and we're talking accommodation food services, um, the number of jobs is still 11% lower than what it was 12 months ago. So there's your number one area, which is most at risk. And we've seen that with, say, for instance, the, the government, all the government's trying to pump money into the tourism sector. That's really linked to accommodation and food services. IT is another one, transport, because people aren't moving around, manufacturing jobs and construction jobs are down. So to put it bluntly, like even though uh, total jobs are back around where they were, it's being driven by about uh, five areas, health, public administration, finance and utilities and, uh, and administration in the office. And yeah. support services. Yeah. So the the job story is really mixed and it's there, there's some real standouts, but there's still some that are really struggling. Now, on the Job Seeker COVID-19 supplement, that ended on Wednesday. So obviously that means less money for people who are actually on the payment. But what do you think that means for the economy overall, seeing less of that money going to, going to Australians? Yeah. So we know there's one and a half million people who are going to be directly affected, but they are going to lose $100 a fortnight. Now, at a macro level, that means there's less capacity for these people to spend. Uh, there have been some surveys in this space around what people and job seeker were using the supplement for. And this was like buying a new pair of shoes, buying clothes, paying bills, like things that most of us take for granted. So by any measure, it does have to have a a financial impact. How big? It's a very large question, which no one actually can give you a definitive answer quite yet. All right, Shane, thank you so much for joining us. Not a trouble, Amanda. Well, it sounds like a lot of people are going to be out of a job. Yeah, that's right. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Now, besides everything going on with the government, Labor was making a bunch of announcements in its special platform conference on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. The ALP, or the Australian Labor Party National Conference, happens once every three years, basically in the lead-up to a coming election. It's what they do to provide a platform for the party to announce its big visions and policies and convince people to vote them into government. Now, some headline announcements from this conference was that if Labor is elected, it would spend 15 billion dollars on something called a national manufacturing fund. Now that would aim to get Australia producing more onshore rather than just shipping off materials to be made into things overseas. So Australia has this issue where we have a lot of resources that are really useful to a lot of things in modern society. One example is something called lithium, which is used in batteries, particularly electric vehicles, but also things in your phone as well. So most of the time, Australia just digs this out of the ground, sends it overseas to be made into all the things that we then 
then eventually buy back. So what Labour is saying is that they want to dig it out of the ground and then actually make those things here in Australia and sell it overseas. That'd be a really big deal for states like mine, WA, which obviously digs a lot of that stuff out of the ground. Another thing that was announced at the conference was a battery program. Labor wants to put $200 million towards creating batteries in communities that connect up people's solar panels on their roofs. And then lastly, it proposed tax breaks for people who want to buy electric vehicles. So lots of interesting ideas. Now, this comes on top of announcements last year, notably a $6 billion childcare package. This is something Labor's really going to fight for in the next election. As part of this package, parents could get up to six months full paid leave to look after newborns, and it would make childcare more accessible generally. The difference with this year's conference was that it was online. Yay, more Zoom meetings. Woo. I actually thought it went pretty smoothly compared to a lot of Zoom meetings. There were only a couple of people on mute. To talk about this year's conference compared to others, I spoke to Mark Kenny. He's a professor at the Australian National University with the Australian Studies Institute. He's also the vice president of the National Press Club. Simply put, what is a Labor conference? Why do they happen at all? Well, political parties have uh, their, you know, their party policy conferences. Uh, Labor's is more theatrical and complete, really, than the Liberals. The Liberals is a federated party, which means they have state divisions and those divisions are pretty autonomous. Labor has a national executive and is a much more sort of national party. And at the national level, every three years, so you know, essentially every once a government term, once a parliamentary term, it has this platform conference. So how does it work? The, the, the states all have delegates, so the state branches have delegates, the big unions have delegates, uh, the federal parliamentary Labor Party um, ministers have uh, you know, speaking rights and, and so forth. People, all kinds of people, people who are not members of the, they're members of the Labor Party, but they're not members of the parliament or whatever, and they may be uh, you know, making quite explosive statements, and that's actually happened in the past. So... There's, it's very untidy, but at the same time, it's very authentic and legitimate to have policy discussions to work out what it stands for, what its main values are. Did you think this one was as um, untidy as you put it? Uh, increasingly, the, they, they've found ways of minimising the, these, uh, these debates and taking some of the edge out of it. Um, and this one, of course, because it's happening mostly online, it's pretty sterile. This one was sterile, but is there a Labor conference in the past that's stuck out to you, you remembered that had something really dramatic happen to give us some kind of context or a point of comparison to, to what we've seen this week? You'd have this, you know, quite dramatic scene where Bob Hawke was Prime Minister and, you know, all the senior ministers sitting there at the front table and Labor premiers. And you'd have, you know, left-wing firebrands standing up and attacking them and it's really quite extraordinary to see a party that was in government um, being so dramatically attacked. And the debates over uh, uranium mining, um, you know, they, they, they were extraordinary and there were other, other ones going way back over things like um, uh, state aid for public schools, uh, for religious schools, you know, Catholic schools. Uh, and plenty of you know colourful speeches, trade unionists getting up and attacking attacking their party for not looking after the workers or whatever it might be. But um, good theatre for people who like politics, that's for sure. That's all we have time for in this week's show. It's been a pleasure to run through the events of another busy few days up on the hill. I've been Amanda Kopp with the Community Radio Network. And I'm Sarah Eisen, political reporter with the West Australian newspaper. Until next time.